Do you remember the name of your very first friend? Remember, remember your very first friend's name. My very first friend was named Jason. He lived behind us in Valley Station, Kentucky. He lived right behind us, and the, the, the yards were, were divided by a fence. And that was the house that I was taken home to from the hospital, the very first house that I ever knew. And Jason was the same way, and we were the same age and same grade. And about the time we were three or four years old, I remember some, some Jason moments. Maybe you've got a friend like that. He was my very first friend. I remember climbing the fence and going over to his yard, and we would play. And he would climb the fence and come to my yard. And his yard had a little bit better set up to play baseball, and so we would play baseball in his backyard. And I remember that until the trees grew and they got too big and, and then it sort of overwhelmed the baseball field. And I, I remember Jason. As time went on, Jason and I, we went to different schools and we wound up moving to a different neighborhood. And occasionally we would see one another years later and just wasn't the same. But he was my very first friend. Do you, do you remember the name of your very worst friend? Maybe more than you remember your very first friend, right? Well, I've had a few of those, haven't you? Folks that you thought maybe were a friend. And then you went through something and either they weren't there for you or they said some hurtful things or, or they were the reason you were going through that in the first place. And maybe your very worst friend is still sort of a plague in your life and you, you're still paying the consequences for that. You know what I've found, regardless of whether it's a first friend or a worst friend, that being friends with people gets more difficult as we get older. It's just the way that it is. It doesn't mean that we don't like people. It just means that it's, it's, it's different. Life changes. Things happen. You take on different responsibilities. You get to a different stage of life, and maybe your friends change. Maybe it's, it's just not the same, and that's what I've noticed. When life gets painful, when it gets complicated, things can change. One thing I've noticed as well is that my role as a friend has changed over the years for people, especially now that I'm a pastor. I, 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 I was, by the way, as a little side note, they, they know now at, at Future Grounds Coffee what I do for a living. They didn't know for the longest time. I would just talk to them. And so last night they were, they were talking about some things. This has nothing to do with the sermon, by the way, nothing at all. Don't take notes on this at all, to nothing. They were talking about, there, there were three baristas in there, and the three young ladies were talking about uh, church and so on. And I, I, so I take my headphones out. I kind of pretend like, you know, I'm really not listening, but I'm, I'm, I'm eavesdropping on their conversation. And so they had forgotten that I was in there. And one of them walked around a corner, and, and I was the only person in the store. And, and they said, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, you probably didn't want to hear all of our conversation. I, I, so I thought, well, I, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag here. I said, no. I said, that's what I talk about every week. And uh, they were talking about Scripture and the things of God. And, oh, really? What do you do? I said, well, I'm a pastor. Which, of course, those three words are just, uh, you know, you don't know how people are going to respond. You know, I just... That's why I just try to you know, I just try to be Brad first, like you know I, that's it, and uh, and and her the, the girl's words are oh you're a preacher I'm like it's not what I said, <laughs> but whatever anyway. But I've noticed as my role changes as 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 I get older and and my friendships deepen in some cases and they get distant in others. One of the roles that I've taken on for people and you probably have done the same thing is not only the role of friend but the role of counselor. 
If somebody sees that you are the kind of person that they can go to in a difficult situation, you will not only be just a friend and just sort of a person that they like being around, but you will be someone dependent upon to give them help and guidance in those situations. And I, as I look around this morning, I've talked with a few of you about how you've done that for people in your lives. It's not always easy. But I want you to think about the last time that a friend of yours or someone around you went through a difficult time. And do you think, honestly, do you think that after having received your friendship and your counsel and your guidance, were they better off or worse off after it was over? You say, well, I'll tell you what, in this situation, maybe I helped them, but I don't know in this other one. I don't think, I think I just kind of made it worse or I didn't help really at all. The last time you had a friend go through something difficult, what did, what did you do? What questions did they ask? Did you feel like you had the answers? Did you, did you have anything to offer them that would have helped in any way? How prepared and how helpful did you feel through that process? In the book of Job, and if you've got your Bible handy, go ahead and get there. If you're on the Bible app this morning, go ahead. It's Job, J-O-B. If you turn to the Bible, if you've got your, your hard copy of the Bible handy, you're not sure where the book of Job is, that's no problem. If you kind of open in the middle, you probably wind up somewhere in Psalms or Proverbs. Turn back to the left just a little bit. Job is a, is a book of 42 chapters, so fairly lengthy, uh, just to the left of the book of Psalms. Job's story, where we pick it up today, uh, has really been a very difficult story to comprehend and to get to and uh, get through, rather, in some cases. Job, it, it's not a fun experience that he has. Let me catch you up real quick. If you're just joining us or if maybe you've forgotten or it's been a couple weeks since you've been in here, we're, we're in a series called When Life Doesn't Make Sense. This is number 12 of 15. So we, we've got four, including today, that we'll get through. So we'll finish it uh, toward the end of November. But we, we've been looking at the life of Job and what can we learn from him and from his friends and from God about what do you do when life doesn't make sense, when things go completely sideways and you may or may not have had anything to do with it. It just happened. Job's story begins, in, of course, in chapter 1. He's described as this man who is an incredible man of God. In fact, God says those things about Job himself. God says that Job is a blameless man. It means he's got great integrity. It doesn't mean he never did anything wrong. It just means he's a man who lives right. He does what's right in the eyes of God. It says he also shunned evil, which means when he didn't do right, he would repent and he would try to avoid anything that would get him off course. And it says that he feared God. And so he worshiped God alone. He's the kind of guy that at church, you would say, that's who I want to follow. I mean, that's the kind of person that I really want to be. He's the, the Christian man that I want to be like, or I wish my sons would grow up and be like him or whatever. So Job has a difficult experience that follows this because Satan goes to God and says, hey, I notice Job, as you've said, is this great man of integrity who worships you and does what's right and so on. But I really think that he does that only because you've made his life so easy. I mean, who wouldn't worship God if everything always went right? Do you find that to be true? I mean, I find it real easy to give God praise when everything is perfect. Lord, thank you so much for all the blessings in my life. I find it very difficult, however, to say thank you, Lord, for all the difficulties in my life. Not so much, right? Don't really thank God for those things as much, right? Satan says he would, he would give up on you, God. He would turn his back on you. He would, he would disown you if, if you allowed me to just take everything away. God knows this is not really a test of Job, but ultimately a test of God. 
Satan is accusing God of having nothing about God be worth worshiping except what God gives to us. If it weren't for blessings, he says, those people, that person, Job, would want nothing to do with you, God, because there's nothing about you that he should want other than what you give him. And God says, you know what? You're wrong. And I'm going to prove it to you. And so God uses the life of Job for reasons maybe that we still don't fully understand, but he uses the life of Job and his difficult times to show us and to show Job that there is more to God worth worshiping than just what God gives to us. And really, that's one of the main points of the book of Job. That even if everything else were taken away, there's still God himself and he is enough. And that's what God sets out to show. And so Job is, I guess, a test case, if you will. Unbeknownst to him, this conversation in heaven took place and Satan is then allowed to go out and to touch Job, if you will. And as all of his stuff is taken away. Job, the richest man around, has all of his things taken. His ten children are then killed in one storm, just like that. And then he loses the support of his wife, who says, why don't you just curse God and die? And then he loses his health. He develops a skin disease that made him an outcast. And Job, as the story goes, sits on the the dump pile. I was at the city dump this week again. I've been there several times. It's either Lowe's or the city dump. That's where if you want to find me, if I'm not here, go there. Okay, one of those two places. <laughs> Spending money in both places. <laughs> it's, it's garbage, but you make me pay to leave it here. Whatever. So anyway, that's, you know, I go buy stuff at Lowe's and then I, I pay to have old stuff to, anyway. So I, I was at the city dump. You know that, that little building, some of you have backed in there before and you unload your stuff. It depends on who's just been there as to the condition and smell of that building. <laughs> I followed three trucks from Hall's Waste Management. Don't recommend it. <laughs> it was nasty in there. I mean, just, you know, your garbage everywhere. Job is sitting on the, the stack of garbage. And he can get no relief. And finally, word gets to three of his friends who travel some distance to, to show up and do something for him. And they try as best they can, in their minds anyway, to help him. And ultimately, as we'll see today, they provide no help for him whatsoever. I want you to look with me in Job chapter 26. Uh, what's happened is, the, is a third round of speeches from his friends. They monologue. They stand up and they tell him what's going on. They've ended, and Job is answering the final friend, and really the, the final time he will answer all three of these friends. And he says this, Job answered, look at verse 2 of chapter 26, how you have helped the powerless and delivered the arm that is weak. That's sarcastic, by the way. Man, you guys are good. Boy, I tell you what. How you have counseled the unwise and thoroughly explained the path to success. Who did you speak these words to? Whose breath came out of your mouth? The departed spirits tremble beneath the waters and all that inhabit them. Sheol is naked before God. And Abaddon has no covering. He stretches the northern skies over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps up the waters in the clouds. Yet the clouds do not burst beneath their weight. He obscures the view of his throne, spreading his cloud over it. He laid out the horizon on the surface of the waters and the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars that hold up the sky tremble, astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stirred the sea, and by his understanding, he crushed Rahab. By his breath, the heavens gained their beauty. His hand pierced the fleeting serpent. 
These are but the fringes of his ways. How faint is the word we hear of him. Who can understand his mighty thunder? Follow what Job is saying. He says to his friends after they've rattled off all these things they think he should do and all these things they think are true about him and what they told him was, Job, you've brought all this on yourself. If you had not sinned or if you would repent of your sin, God would reverse your situation. And he says to them, oh boy, you've been such a tremendous help. Thank you so much for all the words that you've said in the previous 25 chapters. Thank you for that. And he goes on to talk about how nobody fully understands the mind of God. God hides things and he's mysterious in certain things, mysterious in the sense that we don't exactly know here's the reason for those things. They're hidden from us. And yet Job says, you guys think you know everything about God. Then he goes on in verse uh, 1 of chapter 27. He continued his discourse. As God lives, who has deprived me of justice, and, uh, and the Almighty who has made me bitter, as long as my breath is still in me, and the breath from God remains in my nostrils, my lips will not speak unjustly, and my tongue will not utter deceit. And here's what he says to his friends. I will never affirm that you are right. I will maintain my integrity until I die. I will cling to my righteousness and never let it go. My conscience will not accuse me as long as I live. What's he telling his friends? Chapter 26, he's telling them, you guys don't understand. You think you know about God. You think you know him. You think you can speak on his behalf, but you don't know. And then he says in verse 27, not only do you not know, but you're dead wrong in what you said. Job's friends have worn him out. And he told them earlier, as we saw in last week, you guys are all just miserable, terrible counselors. I'll never admit that you're correct, he says, because you're wrong. It's not my fault. I've not done anything to bring this on myself. You've shown up, supposing to be my friend and my counselor, and all you want to tell me is, Job, why don't you figure out what it is that you've done wrong? He said, I haven't done anything wrong. And he goes on to talk about, may my enemy be like the wicked and my opponent like the unjust. He views his friends now as his enemies. Essentially, with friends like these, who needs enemies? Why do you keep up this empty talk, he goes on to say. You haven't helped me at all. You don't know what you're talking about, and you're dead wrong. His friends didn't believe him. They showed that they didn't really care about him. They just cared about trying to be right. And ultimately, because of that, they didn't and they couldn't help him. I want to talk to you this morning briefly about the role that you will play in the lives of the people around you as both friend and counselor. One of the things that I think ought to happen when you come to church and you gather on a regular basis, whether it's here in the, in the sanctuary on Sunday mornings for the sermon and the singing, or whether it's in a Sunday school class or Bible study on Wednesday nights, is that the church and the leaders of the church, like myself, should do our best to equip you for life and for service and for ministry, both inside and out the church. And so that's my goal this morning is that we together would leave here better friends, better counselors based upon what we see in scripture. Now I will just tell you and I'll reiterate it at the end. If you go out and you're the best friend and best counselor that anybody could ever want and you don't know Jesus, then you have missed the entire point of what we do here. Amen. It is not about just being better friends and better counselors, but standing on the word of God who reveals to us the love of Christ Jesus demonstrated on the cross for us and for our sin to forgive us and to redeem us and to promise us eternal life. That's the foundation from which we operate as friends and counselors.
few things to know just at first about being a good friend and good counselor. I, just some observations that I've made just in my own life. Number one, it's not easy. Maybe you've noticed that. It's not easy. Job's friends thought that they were right. And so they, they spent 25 chapters really trying to tell him where he was wrong. But in that, they still had to spend 25 chapters. Who knows how much time? These guys recognized early on, this ain't going to be easy. They thought it was just because Job had dug his heels in and he was unwilling to admit his sin. But outright, we get that helping our friends and being a counselor to folks is not an easy task. What I've discovered is that I can't control my friends and I can't control the people that I talk to in a counseling setting. I have done more counseling, uh, I think anyway, as a result of this particular series and folks just resonating with the idea that life sometimes doesn't make sense. I've done more counseling uh, really in recent weeks than I have done probably in the last year. And it's interesting to me that I, I can't control anything that those people do. It makes counseling pretty hard, doesn't it? You ever had a friend that used to, you thought, hey, you know what, I think we figured some things out here. We've gained some ground. I mean, it seems like they kind of understand now, and they're going to go make these appropriate changes that we both agreed were necessary and helpful and godly and biblical. And then they go out and do the same exact thing that brought them to you in the first place. I mean, do, do you all have people? Do you have people like that? I mean, they're sitting next to you, aren't they? So you don't want to, you don't want to nod. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, so you can just kind of, just kind of blink your eyes at me, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, yeah, we've got those kind of people, right? It's tough sometimes. But listen, being a good friend and a good counselor is part of the disciple making process. And what I've found about that process is it ain't easy either. If you're going to get involved in the lives of people, it's going to be really, really messy. They will not do what you want them to do. They will not do what God wants them to do. They're going to do what? What they want to do. And it's going to take some time and a lot of prayer and a lot of patience and a lot of banging your head against the wall before eventually they see that their way needs to be submitted to God's way and ultimately that's the only chance that we have. So being a friend and a counselor is, is just not easy. And I think that's sometimes why we avoid it. I, I think that's sometimes why we would rather someone else get involved and someone else do those things. But anyway, no, never easy. Secondly, we're often terrible at it. Let's just be honest. We're terrible at this sometimes. We're just not any good at being friends and counselors. What made Job's friends so terrible? Why would he say, you are all such miserable counselors? Why would he be sarcastic and say, oh, look how much you've helped me. Thank you so much. Because they just wanted to fix him. They were terrible because they just wanted to tell him what he needed to do rather than to listen and to just simply be with him. They, they wanted to fix him. You got friends like that? I'll tell you what, I know what they need to do. In fact, I've been making a list, and they just asked me. I could tell them exactly what they need to do to prevent this from happening again in their lives. You know, number one, stop being stupid, okay? Just stop. Just stop being stupid, really? Don't say that to your friends out loud, do you, though? You're thinking it the whole time. Like, dude, you're just dumb. I mean, what do you want me to tell you? You know? But we're terrible at it because we don't want to listen and get the nuanced, you know, uh, information behind it. We just want to just stop doing that. Whatever that is, stop doing that. We often think we're the experts, don't we? 
We have people in this room, I guarantee you, who in your circle of friends, you are the person that people go to over and over and over. You seem to be the one person around whom all the friendships and counseling needs revolve. And if you're not careful, and I say this from experience because here at the church, I get a lot of questions and I get a lot of people that want to say, what do you think about this? If you're not careful, you will easily become the person who is the expert. Some folks would say, know it all in everything. And we begin to lack humility and that's when we get off course as a friend and counselor because then we... We speak before we think. Because then we don't listen enough to fully understand the situation. Then we don't really care. We're just giving answers. Thirdly, uh, on this, the church is vital. And I don't just mean this church. I just mean the church. The idea of the people of God. I do pray each week that it is under the preaching of God's word that you are equipped and you leave here with either things to think about that the Lord can work on you, something to do and to submit to the Lord or whatever it may be. And I really do pray and I really do hope that it is among the people of God that you are encouraged and that you are advised on how best to minister to your friends and those that you're counseling. And I really do believe that apart from regular involvement with the church, we cannot be fully equipped and rounded out for the ministry that God has for us. I really believe that. When Jesus sent people out, he didn't send them out as individuals and say, hey, we'll see you in about three years. He sent them out at two by two, and then he had them come back to him to report so that they could be greater equipped. Job's friends really struggled with all this stuff. They didn't listen to him. They didn't really care about him, and as a result, they didn't, and they couldn't help him. Now, what I trust this morning is that you have people in your lives right now who are looking for a friend and a counselor. You may not know who they are. You may work with them. Maybe somebody whose situation you don't even know fully yet, but you've got people in your life who are looking for a friend and looking for a counselor. Think about it with me for just a second, okay? We've made this list before, but if you want to write down these categories, write them down. They're not going to be on the screen. But if you want to look at the people in your life who are facing disaster. I mean, they've had some really bad things happen, whatever it may be. That could be any kind of disaster. Look at the people in your life who are facing disease. The people facing divorce. The people dealing with depression. And those who are either themselves or have had someone face death recently. Disaster, disease. What did I say? Divorce, depression, death. Those are the people right now that God has put in your life for you to be both friend and counselor. I used to tell kids when I was a youth pastor, I said, I want you to make a list. If they had six classes during the day, and, and back when, when I was in school, you six, seven classes, whatever it was. Yeah, I told them, I said, if you sit in the very first row, which of course all of you do, right? Everybody sits right up front. Great students, all up front, right? All the best students up front. But it's just the chairs are most comfortable. I get it, it's okay. Anyway. I said, even if you sit in the very front, you've got a person on your left, a person on your right, and a person behind you, typically. You take those three people and you multiply it by six. So we helped them with school, too. You multiply it by six. What do you get? Six times three is what? 
18. Good job. Okay. Six times three is 18. I said, God has strategically placed you every single day, every hour of every day around 18 people to whom it is no accident that God has sent you and for whom you are to be both friend and counselor. The people that you work with, the people that you're around on a regular basis, the folks in your family, the folks that you interact with, the people that just always seem to, to be in class, if you will, sitting around you, those are the people that God has sent you to. You may like them, you may not like them, but they, that is your mission field, your friend, your counselor role to be played out. How then do you do that the best way possible? I think there are three things we got to know. I think these are three things that Job's friends did not know. So in one sense, I'm looking at his friends, I'm looking at what Job said about them, and I'm playing the opposite. What did they not fully know and understand? The first is you got to know God. You have to know God. This is the ministry of grace. Because once you know more about God, you will understand his grace towards you, and you will begin to extend it toward other people. Now let me just, in fairness to Job's friends, I'll say this about them. They did not have the full revelation of God that we have in, in both the Old Testament and New Testament. They didn't have all that. So they're operating based upon what they have assumed is true about God. Can I just be honest with you? We have no excuse for operating like Job's friends. None. We have both Old Testament and New Testament. We have Jesus Christ, the very living word of God. We have no excuse for not knowing God more than these guys knew God. They simply had what was a limited, narrow kind of view of God's dealings with human beings, and they didn't fully understand, and that's what they operated out of. We have to know God on a greater level, and we can know him. God would say about Job's friends in Job chapter 42, he would tell them, you have not spoken truthfully about me. You have been wrong. Job's friends were not correct. I think it's true of us as well. Just like they didn't know God well enough, often we don't operate in the best way as friends and counselors because we don't know God enough. God approaches us on terms of grace. Let me ask you this. What would change if you approached your friends and those in a counseling setting on terms of grace? I'll just tell you. When people come to me and they sit in my office and they begin to, 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 to explain the things that they're dealing with, it is sometimes very difficult to be gracious. I'm just going to be 100% honest with you. Why? Because that's just dumb. Why did you do that? You, you know what I'm talking about? This is what I said earlier. Man, that's just stupid. Why would you keep doing that? Do you not know what that's costing you? I mean, those are the things that go through your mind, right? But then when I look at Jesus on the cross... Looking at me and my sin and saying, that's just dumb. Why would you keep doing that? At least that's what I would have said on the cross. And what does he say on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. When I know God better and I understand Jesus better, I am able to give grace in a much better and more appropriate way. I am equipped with the ministry of grace. Am I the means of grace for anyone? Do I provide God's grace for anyone? No, I do not. I cannot in any way provide God's grace for someone. I am simply the channel through which God speaks his word so that his grace may be evident to them. I am not the one who saves anyone. Let me just tell you that. You can't come to me to get to God. Can't do it. We can sit in counseling and we can talk and we can be friends. You cannot come to me.
through me to get to God. Can't do it. I am human. I am flawed. I am messed up just like you are. And I am in as desperate a need as a Savior as you are and, and anybody in the world. But you and I can be the conduit through which God speaks His Word. And the more that I know God, the more gracious I can be, the more evidence that there can be of God's grace toward them. Secondly, I've got to know people. And this sets me up for the ministry of presence. Not Christmas presence, but presence. You know, there are some things that all people have in common. Number one, we're all really messed up. I've been reading a book recently. The guy finally made the point. He just said, you know what? We're all kind of crazy. He said, I went to some therapy one time and I realized I'm just crazy. You know, that's part of my problem. I'm just kind of nuts. All of us are. We all have our things. We're all flawed. We're all hurt. We're all needy. And we all have certain things that we want. We all want to be loved. We all want to be known. We want to be respected. We want to be appreciated. We want to be encouraged. We want to be helped. We want to have purpose in our lives. Know those things about people. And you'll get closer to the motivation for why they do what they do. Maybe it's not so stupid after all. Maybe they just want to be loved. Maybe they just want to feel appreciated once in their life. Maybe they just want to be respected. Maybe they just want to be encouraged. Maybe they just want to feel like they have some purpose. And maybe, just maybe, it's not, well, that's so stupid. I don't understand why you did that. You say, oh, okay. I got you now. Not the best decision, not a wise decision, not a godly decision, but I understand why it is that you did what you did. When you begin to know people, you become comfortable with the ministry of presence. Job's friends did this for just a short period of time. When they first show up and they find him in the garbage dump, they just go and they sit down with him. Right there in the middle of Hall's waste management junk everywhere. There they are. Man, there's just liquidy something, goo. Ugh, it was nasty, by the way. It was really nasty. And that's where those guys came and sat with Job. They just sat with him. For seven days, they sat there. Didn't say a word. The ministry of presence. If they had just stopped there, maybe the book would have a much different tone. But they didn't stop there, of course. They weren't content with just being there for him. They had to try to fix him. We're told in the New Testament that we are to bear one another's burdens. You ever had a burden that you needed someone to share? You ever had them try to fix you in order to share your burden? You ever just wish they'd go away? kind of how it works out, isn't it? We're simply to come alongside people. Job was asking questions that only God could answer, and God wasn't speaking, and so these guys got nervous. They had to say something because God wasn't speaking, and Job needed answers, so let's try to fix Job to provide his answers, and it was all messed up. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul tells us that he was able to minister to people even in their weakness and their troubles. Knowing people. Not pretending to be an expert, but simply ministering even out of our own weaknesses. Just being a part of the lives of people that God has sent to us. I mentioned those folks earlier that you proverbially sit around, if you will, in class every day. Those are the folks that God would send you to be a part of their healing and a part of their sorrow. James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, as he rounds out the chapter, James tells us about pure and undefiled religion. And he doesn't tell us that pure and undefiled religion is only about keeping ourselves away from things of the world, although he mentions that. 
But he says, pure and undefiled religion. You want to really know the heart of God. He says, minister to the widows and the orphans in what? In their distress. That word minister there has the connotation that you'd be with them. That you'd know them. That you'd have the ministry of presence. That you would lay down any agenda and you'd just move in and talk with them. You know what Job needed was not friends to come and fix him. Job needed somebody like what Murray State provides in the Racer Patrol. You go to school at Murray State. Anybody, who, who, went to, who went to school at Murray State? Raise your hand. Did anybody, did anybody ever... And, 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 did anybody ever get cynical about the Racer Patrol? Or is it just me? What are these guys doing? Chip, thank you for being honest. Okay, we are. Do you know what they provide, however? They provide somebody in the darkness to walk with you where you're going. That's the ministry of presence. Someone that says, hey, you know what? I'm not so sure about this situation. Let me call for someone to help walk with me to where I'm going through the darkness. I'll admit my cynicism about it. Until I began to study this and I realized, you know what? That points to what we need to be for the folks around us. Sort of like the Racer Patrol. Just there for folks to walk with them through the darkness so that they are not alone. I came across an article this week. Reference to a book called The Last Thing We Talk About. Written by a guy named Joe Bailey. The article quoted and says this. Joe and his wife, Mary Lou, lost three of their children. They lost one son following surgery when he was only 18 days old. Their second son died at age 5 from leukemia. They lost a third son at age 18 after a sledding accident. And he wrote these words, Joe did in his book. I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I already knew were true. I was unmoved except I wished he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. I think it's interesting how the ministry of presence is so powerful in the lives of people, and we have the chance to provide it for them. Thirdly, and lastly, we have to know Scripture. This sort of goes hand in hand, obviously, with knowing God, but we have to know His Word. We got to know scripture. We got to know people. We got to know God, the ministry of the word. I'll be honest with you. Hank and I were talking about this the other day. I just made the point to him. I said, you know, most of what I will say to people in a counseling setting comes from the numerous times, the dozens of times that when I was younger, when I was a teenager through college and, and even, even more recently that I have read through the book of Proverbs. Over and over and over and over and over again. It's wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Stuff that I can't invent and don't have on reserve. But it's what God gives me. Let me be honest with you. You don't need a PhD in clinical psychology to be able to help your friends and to be able to counsel them. You just need to know the scripture probably better than we know it right now. We need to know what it means and what God says for us to do in response to what it means. But I'll be honest with you. It's not just about quoting it. Let me read you a couple verses right down the reference. Proverbs chapter 15. You can go back and read it. Proverbs 15, 23. A man takes joy in giving an answer and a timely word. How good that is. And then Proverbs chapter 25. 
verses 11 and 12. A word spoken at the right time is like gold apples on a silver tray. I don't have any clue what gold apples on a silver tray was supposed to really mean to them back then, but it was really something special, okay? It's exactly what it was like valuable to them, okay? Gold apples on a silver tray, you know, it probably looks like something now out of the 1970s with the fake grapes and the kind of, you know what I'm saying, anyway. <laughs> Grandma had that stuff, anyway. <clears throat> she probably still does. <laughs> Oh, she probably listened to the podcast, too, anyway. We'll edit that part out. Um, a word spoken at the right time is like gold apples on a silver tray. A wise correction to a receptive ear is like a gold ring or an ornament of gold. What are they saying? Know the scripture, what it means, and when to use it, and how to use it. Do you know... As a reference, the guy earlier had said, you know, the guy had all the right answers, stuff that I already knew. But it wasn't the right time to share those things. Know the scripture. It's not about sending them a text or a meme with the perfect verse that you just found for them that morning. Hey, I thought of you. Maybe that helps, but be wise and pray for wisdom to know how do I use this. You say, how do I know the scripture better? I'm just going to rattle off a few things. Consume it. Most of the time we don't read the scripture enough. The verse of the day is not enough, by the way. Not enough. Consume it. Study it. What do you mean by study it? Do more than just skim it. Look at it. Look for what's connecting and so on. What's going on in the overall story and do your best to understand it. Meditate on it. Wait a minute. Meditate. Yeah, fill your mind with it throughout the day. That's what meditating on scripture means. Let it be in your mind all the time. And then let me encourage you to be fluent in it. Hey, you know what? What I talk about simply comes from the Scripture, just what I talk about. And then be timely with it. So the pattern might go something like this. Pray, read, meditate, memorize, observe people. Pray, internalize it, pray. Speak, pray. Spend some time in prayer as you approach God's Word. The overall story of Scripture, by the way, can be broken down very simply. It's creation. It's fall or sin. It's redemption in Jesus Christ and it's ultimate restoration when he makes all things right. We have to figure out and we have to be wise and we have to ask God for how is it, Lord, that I need to apply those things to the lives of the people around me. Ultimately, the prayer this week, you see there in parentheses down at the bottom, Lord, send me. As, as imperfect and flawed as I am, send me. Lord, let my relationships, my friendships, my counseling engagements, if you will, let them be based upon an ongoing knowledge of God, an ongoing knowledge of people, and a constant growing in knowledge of the Scripture. It would change everything because Jesus changes everything. Now, as I told you from the beginning, all this is really helpful, I hope. And boy, you can do something with this. All right. But... Your purpose in life is not just to be a better friend or better counselor leaving here. Your purpose in life, as is mine, is to know Jesus, to love him, and to glorify him. And so this morning, don't leave here today. Don't leave here today without that foundation, without recognizing who you are apart from Jesus Christ, which is condemned, but who you can be in Jesus Christ, which is redeemed and made whole again. Let's pray together. Take just a moment and consider the people in your life for whom you are playing the role of friend and counselor. How is it 
that you can have the ministry of grace, the ministry of presence, the ministry of God's Word for them. Take them even right now before the throne of God and say, Lord, I give them to you. Lord, use me, send me into their life in such a way that it will be Jesus who is seen and not me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the foundation that we can operate from, the one of grace found only in Jesus Christ. Lord, make us adequate in the ministry of grace, showing people what you have done in our lives and helping them to understand what you want to do in theirs. Lord, help us with the ministry of presence that we would truly get to know people, not shy away from their difficulties, but Lord, lean into them, even if we feel inadequate. Lord, help us with the ministry of your word. Lord, make us better students and teachers of your word. All of this, Lord, for the, for the purpose of glorifying Jesus Christ, that you may be high and lifted up in our lives, that you would use us in the lives of other people. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.